Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Welcome to lesson number 12 in the Gospel of John. We're fast approaching the end of the book, so today we're going to be looking at two chapters. In John chapter 16, we have Christ's final words to his disciples as they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ will be betrayed by Judas. And then in John chapter 17, we have the record of Christ's high priestly prayer in the garden. So join us as we begin today's study. We're in John 16 and 17 tonight. So let's uh, open in prayer. Father, thank you so much for tonight. Open our hearts to uh, what you'd have to teach us. Thank you for this time to be here to study, um, to have your word. A lot of times we take it for granted, Father, that we always have it. We probably shouldn't. A lot of people didn't have your word through the centuries, and many of us in here have more than one copy of it. But I pray that we would love it, and I pray that you teach us, and that we would live it in our lives. And we just thank you for this night to study and fellowship together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, John 16, we're still working our way through. Um these last words of Christ to his disciples. And uh, John 16, when did Christ tell him this? Say again. When did Christ tell them about, when, when was Christ talking? What was he doing while he was talking? He was still at the last supper. No, it's he's not. On to, it's on the way to Gethsemane he's saying this. All right? Because they left, remember they left the upper room at the end of chapter 14. All right, they're out the door, and now John 15 and 16, he is speaking to them as they're going um, towards Gethsemane. Um, what does Gethsemane mean? Anybody know that? Garden. No. What? You said it. It's olive press. Yeah, it's the olive press. Um, in the gardens, usually they have like an olive press where they would squeeze the olives and get the olive oil out of them. So that's what Gethsemane means. It's olive press. Um, Christ uh, 16.1, these things have I spoken to you that I sh that you should not be made to stumble. Um, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's doing God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. What's Christ warning his disciples of here? Persecution. It's part of the... Let's understand, you know, if, if there's anything that the average Christian needs to really get in their heads today, is that persecution is a normal part of being a Christian. It's not abnormal. Now, if you listen to TBN, it's abnormal. Don't listen to TBN. If you got TBN, block it from your TV. In fact, you have to choose between watching MTV and TBN. Watch MTV. All right. Um, yeah. You don't need TBN because in, on that channel, persecution, bad times, rough times in your Christian life, those are all aberrations. That's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says that's a normal part of the Christian life. Christ is saying here, 
I'm telling you these things now so that when you face these things, you're not surprised by them. Pardon? Yeah, it's not if, but when. And really, remember, in the, in the original text, there's no chapter division. So really, verse 1 is really following the thought of the last part of verse or of chapter 15. When the Helper comes, whom I send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So what is the context of them being persecuted? Bearing witness of Christ. Bearing witness. That's part of it. Okay? And he says here, I'm telling you this so you would not stumble. The concept of their stumbling is to be knocked off center, to be confused. I, I don't want you to be confused by this. And see, the problem is today most or many Christians, maybe, maybe it is most Christians, when they face trials in their life, they're knocked off base because they see it as an aberrant thing. It's not supposed to be happening. I mean, if, if I was as strong in the spirit or as, as I should be or I had enough faith, I wouldn't be having these difficulties. Um, I would be skating over them. Um, that concept is foreign to Scripture. It's just not there. And Christ is telling them, you are going to face persecutions, and I don't want you to stumble and what's going to happen specifically is that you are going to be put out of the synagogues. Now, to a Jew, what did that mean? Excommunication. Excommunication. Um, people wouldn't buy your products. They wouldn't associate themselves with you. If you were a Jewish baker, you wouldn't be able to sell your bread. If you were in business, people wouldn't stop by there. Your social life, the Jewish social life centered around synagogue. That was a lot of their life. And Christ is saying they're going to put you out of that. They're going to put you out of the synagogue. Not only that one, but the time is coming when if they kill you, they think they're doing God a favor. Who, who's the primary example of that in the New Testament? Paul, right? I mean, he, he was... If you had asked, asked the Apostle Paul prior to heading off to Damascus, you know, what are you doing? He says, I am fighting for the truth. I'm fighting for the truth. I'm doing God a favor by getting rid of these Christian heretics. That's how he saw it. You know. Pardon? Yeah. You, you know, you see that same mentality in Islam. Um, you see this in, in the medieval Roman Catholic Church who slaughtered Bible-believing Christians. You are killed for having a copy of the Bible. You'd be burned at the stake as a heretic. They thought they were doing God a favor. Um, they weren't. Um, and one of the interesting things here, just, just to mention, we, we had one of our friends come up to visit us. She, uh, the neighbor monster. Um, they were used to live next to us, called neighbor monsters, but they've grown up now. They're a little older, and uh, she loves Donna. She thinks Donna's the greatest thing in the world, so she wanted to come up and spend Thanksgiving with us. And her family's Mormon, and um, you know, talking to her, I mean, she, she when she got in the car, we picked her up in um, Columbus. We met halfway. She had her Bible with her, her scriptures, they call it, 
and it's a it's a little thicker than ours because it's got the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. And uh, she's 16 years old, and uh, she gets up every day and gets to school by seven to take part in seminary. That's the Mormon Bible training before school starts. She spends an hour in Bible study at her school, and uh, they go through. They take one year, go through the Book of Mormon, one year through the Doctrine and Covenants, one year through the Old Testament, one year through the New Testament. But her entire life is wrapped up in that system. It's an insidious, I'm here to tell you that Mormonism is one of the most insidious systems. Because it so enraptures and entangles you in every aspect of your life that breaking out of it, it's tough. Your entire life is bound up in this thing. Um, kids, you know, all, their entire social network is in their church. Their extracurricular activities are in their church. Um, for them to, to leave and, and get out of that that thing, it's, it's, it's almost impossible for them to do unless the Holy Spirit does a work in their heart because... That's their entire life. That's all they've known. And for them to leave that is like leaving their own family. It reminds you of what Christ said. If you're not willing to hate your father, mother, sister, brother, you're not worthy of me. But it's an entrapping system. And people are entrapped in their systems of belief. And Christ is telling, his, he's almost warning them here, you're going to be thrown out of the synagogues. In other words, if you love... <laughs> your social network more than you love me. You're not worthy of me. You're going to be thrown out of your social networks. You're going to lose friends. I've lost friends over the years because of the gospel. Because of the truth. It's par for the course, folks. In Christ's time, you're going to be tossed out of the synagogues. Um, remember that, what's the man that was tossed out of the synagogue here in John, remember? Who was that? The blind, the blind guy. I love this guy. You know, he said, well, I, you know, I don't know what you smart people know, but all I know is this guy healed me and told me to take on my bed and walk, and you don't know where he's coming from? I like him. He's, he reminds me, of, you know, the, the one-liner back. And their response was they got mad and threw him out of the synagogue. But what do you value? And Christ is saying, you're going to be thrown out of your social network. And you're going to even be killed. And the people who kill you think they're acting on behalf of God. They're doing God a favor by killing you. And why are they killing you? Because you testify of me. You're my witnesses. You're my witnesses. Um... You know what the Greek word for witness is? Martyr, martyr race. We get the word martyr from that. The Greek word is martyr race, to be a witness. And they will do these things to you, verse 3, because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, in Christ's life, how was this borne out? 
What did the Jews do? Crucify him. They turned him over to the Romans for execution. Why? Because they didn't know the Father. And that's what Christ's saying. They're doing it because they've not known the Father nor me. They don't know the Father. They don't know who the Father is. And why is it that true believers will be martyred and killed and thrown out of the synagogues? Because they don't know God. The people who do it don't know him. Remember Christ at the end of John 8 said, you are your father, the devil. You're not of your father, the God. You're your father, the devil. Because Abraham rejoiced to see my day and you guys want to kill me. You don't have any truth in you. And these things have I told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. When the time comes and you're going to face excommunication, you're going to face persecution and possibly even death, you're going to remember that I told you that it's coming your way. It's part of the normal Christian life. You're fighting, you're, you're fighting against the world. You're fighting against the, the, the mores and the, the values of this planet. As Christians, we're, we don't fit in. And of course they're going to hate us. And especially if you stand up and see, you know, really you see this, you see this becoming more and more an issue in our politically correct world. Say anything you want, just don't say you're right. You know, up in Canada, they even want to try and label certain things hate crimes. If I, if I tell a homosexual I think he's sinful, that's a hate crime. And I should go to prison for that. At least that's what the world thinks. See, and, and, and understand what's... Remember, remember what I said about error? Error says, let's sit down, let's be open-minded. Truth says, check me out. So whenever somebody says, you need to be a little bit open-minded about this, you need to be a little, little less, you know, let, let's just get along, that's error speaking. Truth says, test me. Check me out. Compare me to what the Word of God says. Error says, let's get along. Let's not be too harsh and judgmental and critical. And a lot of those people that do that turn Christ into this sort of meek, milquetoast kind of person that would never dare tell anybody they're wrong. That's not the Christ I read in the Scripture who basically calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs and children of hell. And their father is the devil. <laughs> That's not very politically correct. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you, but now I go away to him who sent me. Why is Christ telling them this now? Why is he warning them of the coming persecutions? Well, I think when he was walking the earth, that he was the focus of that he was. He leaves, they're going to be the focus. Right. He's no longer the buffer. That's right. You know, the Pharisees argued with Jesus. You don't see the Pharisees really arguing with the disciples at this point, right? They're arguing with Jesus. He's the one that they're fighting. But with Jesus gone, who are they going to set their sights on? Followers. The disciples. 
And Christ is saying, I didn't tell you this yet because I've been with you all the way along, but, you know, I'm going away. And when I go away, the buffer's gone and you're going to be facing the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Don't you think, it, you know, when you look at that, it would seem to me that the average person, even if they're a disciple, would have put two and two together. Because whatever they're doing to Jesus, and you're his disciple, somewhere along the way, they're going to focus that same anger and displeasure with you. Yes and no. Yes, in a sense, should they have known it? Sure, but we're looking back on it, right? Yeah, that's true. No, in the sense of what were they looking for? The kingdom. Yeah, their entire life. You understand, the, the average Jew, for their entire life, they were taught the Messiah would bring in the kingdom. This repentance stuff and dying on a cross and meek, you know, that's, don't want that. We want the king. We want the ruler. We want the power. And that's what they were after. And remember, again, what were they arguing about on the way to the upper room? Who's going to sit where? Yeah, who's going to have the big seat in the kingdom who's going to get to do what job they had no they were oblivious to Christ dying on even even at this point they didn't get it they were still thinking that there was going to be some miraculous intervention by Christ that's going to throw the Romans out and gather the Israelites and usher in the, the kingdom and they were going to be on the first floor of that enterprise the last thing they thought about is Jesus dying. That just didn't make any sense to them. But now I go away to him who sent me. That's the Father, right? None of you asked me where you're going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Why are they sad? Because Christ is going away. They don't understand that. They still don't understand. What's he talking about? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. This is the great promise. What is Christ telling them here? I'm not going to leave you as a orphan. I am going away. Yes. I will no longer be here. Yes. I'm not going to leave you by yourself. I'm going to send a helper. Greek word parakletos, one called alongside. The idea there is someone called alongside to bear you up, to help you with your burden. To put their arm around you and lift you up and encourage you and strengthen you. He says, I'm going to send the helper to you. But if I don't go away, the helper will not come. I have to go away. And the helper, the Holy Spirit, and who is this helper? Well, we know it's the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, what is he going to do? Well, Christ lays it out. By the way, before we get to that, you know, one of the common misconceptions is people think, well, you know, the, if, you, if you ask the average person in the Baptist church, what's the difference between an Old Testament Jew and a New Testament believer? They would probably say things along the lines of, well, the Old Testament Jew was saved by works because he had to keep the law. And the New Testament person is saved by faith. And the Old Testament person, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. The New Testament person does. In fact, they would almost say that the Spirit really didn't do a whole lot in the Old Testament. Well, you, 
let's understand who is the agent of regeneration at any time? Holy Holy Spirit. So is the Holy Spirit active in the Old Testament? Yeah. But there was a difference. And what is that? It was on certain individuals, but yeah, the normative pattern is that the Holy Spirit did not stay. He did not indwell permanently. The Holy Spirit would come and go. The Holy Spirit came upon Samson. The Holy Spirit left Samson. The difference that Christ is promising to those in the New Covenant is that when the Holy Spirit comes, it's going to be a permanent part. It's not going to be temporary. He's going to be a permanent part of us. And he's going to be sent from the Father, from the from the Son. The Son is going to send the Holy Spirit. Now, why? What does that imply about the relationship between the Son and the Holy Spirit? Right. And why was the Spirit submissive to the Son? He lose some bet. In eternity past? No, because that was the role. That was the role in redemption. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Each each member of the Trinity has a unique role. And that does not imply there's any sort of uh, you know inequality between them. Each member of the Trinity is as much God as any other member of the Trinity. But in the drama of redemption, the Holy Spirit took upon himself the role of the comforter, the helper. The Holy Spirit is the agent of regeneration. And it says here, the Holy Spirit in verse 8, when he's come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is going to bring an awareness of sin. It's going to be an awareness of sin. Why do you think that is? The average pagan that walks into your church, what does he feel? Curiosity. Curiosity. Probably not scared, right? Unless you're doing some really weird stuff in your church. Unless you like the Jellicoe snake handlers, you know, you pull out the rattlesnakes, start handling them. Yeah, sit in the back row, a little close to the door. If there's no door, you'll make one. Um, but um, now, what would happen if God showed up? Y'all would. Why? Because you would realize your state of total wretchedness in, in, in God's sight. See, we're all a bunch of little pieces of coal in a coal bin. And we look at each other and we say, well, I'm not quite as black as you are. And all of us are pretty happy there, right? And we pat ourselves on the back. Then pure, spotless, 
sinless son of God, pure white comes. And guess what? We all realize as far as the white goes, we're all pretty much the same. Whenever you see God showing up in the Bible to mankind, you see one common response. Terror. Now that should tell you something right there about the boys on TBN, shouldn't it? When they sit there and say, well, yeah, God appeared to me this morning and gave me a outline to the sermon. As Kenneth Hagin says. God actually showed up and personally handed him a sermon outline. Or as one other one says, you know, Jesus comes in and puts his arm around me while I'm shaving in the morning. To which someone said, do you keep on shaving? It's silliness. When God shows up, we have one common reaction, terror. And why is that? Because when he shows up, we get to see ourselves for what we really are. Why did Adam and Eve run and hide? Because now they, they see their failings and they were terrified. And Daniel, when he saw the Lord, he fell down as a dead man. And John, when he saw the Lord in Revelation, he fell down dead. And Isaiah just said, damn me. That's the Hebrew word. I'm undone. The Israelites in the mountains said, oh, Moses, you go talk to God. Yeah, we don't want to get near that. In fact, if you were to touch the mountain, you were to be killed. And what you see here is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit brings an awareness of sin. You don't. It's not you. And if this tells us anything, it tells us in the act of redemption or the work of redemption it's really not your wonderful presentation of the gospel that makes a difference. And it's really not your ability to answer the questions and objections. And it's really not your supposed godly character that makes one bit of difference. Rather, it is the work who brings the Holy Spirit who brings the work of conviction to the heart. And Christ is saying when the Holy Spirit has come, what is he going to convict the world of? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, what is he going to be to the help, to the believer? What's the emphasis here? Helper, right? Teacher, comforter. But to the world, he is conviction. And he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they don't believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. What brings a person to the awareness of their sinful condition in the coming judgment? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And the question goes to us, you know, why is it if somebody said, why do you believe in a place you've never been to? Y'all believe in heaven, right? Anybody been there? Don't read the books about guys that go there and come back. One guy says he always smells his tie that he was wearing when he made a trip to heaven because it has a smell of heaven on it. So whenever he wants to reminisce about going to heaven, he 
takes his tie out and gives it a good whiff and smells his tie. Or about the other guy that got dunked in the river of life by Christ. That's silliness. That's stupidity. Oh, there's another one. It was not, that followed. That was the same guy. That probably wrote ninety minutes in hell. Um, Actually, there's one. There was one good one. There was about. I don't. I don't can't remember the title. It might have been ninety minutes in heaven. Yeah. And he spoke of the near death experience, and uh, and he said he was he was on the cusp, and he sensed he was on the cusp between life and death. But he didn't say he was in heaven. He no. said it changed his life. Yeah. I mean, so it wasn't. Yeah. Oh, this one guy, I guess, he went to heaven. He got he got a trip to heaven. And of course Christ is showing him around. It's not never somebody else. It's always Christ that shows him around. And uh Christ was showing him around. He said about he sh he, Christ showed him this large warehouse in heaven. This huge building. And he went in and I'm not making this up. He said on the wall, you know, he saw arms and feet. And eyeballs and ear. He saw all body parts hanging on the wall, you know, all all labeled and hanging on. And he asked what those was, and and Christ told him, said, "Well, those are all the the body parts that people could have if they just had faith to believe and be healed." You know, that's a new one. You know, yeah. So if you show up, if you show up in heaven without an arm, you can go to the warehouse and I guess get one fitted out for you, but. But why is it that you believe in a place you've never been to? Why do you believe in a Savior? You ever see Christ? You ever talk to him? You ever talk to God? I mean audibly, hear him speak to you. You ever see a demon or Satan or an angel? Why do you believe all that stuff? And where did that come from? God opens your eyes and gives you his Holy Spirit that enables you to believe in something that you've never seen. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. Sorry, their attacks have been very uh, frequent in the papers lately about people who believe in and talk to a man in the sky. Mm. In several letters to the editor. Defending mm. Dennis Kucinich who talks to aliens. They're saying, well, how's he any different from people who believe in God? Because Dennis Kucinich is an alien. I mean... <laughs> I think I think I saw him. If you if you, if you go back and watch Men in Black, he's one of the aliens that are by the school teacher there. You know. I think Dennis Miller had it right. A stopped brain is right twice a day. You know, and that's that's about where he is. Um, but anyways, is the, the whole point here, what Christ is saying, when the Holy Spirit comes, what's he going to do? He's going to do the work of conviction. To the, as far as the world can go, he's going to convict them of their sin. He's going to bring in an awareness of their sin. Now, how do people respond to an awareness of sin? Some repent, and if they reject, what happens? Well, usually it's a violent rejection. When, and that's what Christ said. If I had not come and shown them their sin, they would not hate me, right? But now I've exposed them for what they are, and they don't like that. You want to get a sinner to hate you, expose him for what he really is. He'll hate you. Because see, sin, sin thrives in the darkness when nobody knows what's going on. I keep saying the Holy Spirit makes the world of sin. You mean everybody... 
has that, is, is convicted, either they reject or... No, I think this is a general statement here. The, word, the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to be our helper, and he's going to convict the world of their sin. I mean, he's going to be the convicting agent. All right? I don't think it means that every single person in the world is going to be... I think it's a general statement. Who is the one who convicts people of their sin? I mean, I mean, stop and think about the process of salvation. Before you can be saved, what do you need to know? That you're lost. Well, how do you get that? By being convicted of your sin. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't convict you of your sin, you'll never be saved. Ever. And that's why, by the way, that's why if somebody comes along and they want to try and uh, divorce the idea of repentance from salvation... They're preaching a false gospel, folks. You can't you can't tell somebody they can they can be saved without being aware of their sin. John MacArthur was talking to some lady on yeah he was being interviewed on one of the radio stations out in L.A. by a, a lady who was this this um, moderator of a Christian talk radio program you know call in and talk you know and uh, he asked during one of the commercial breaks you know well you know are you saved? Because what had happened is some lady had called up and asked him, well, what do you need to do to become a Christian? And he gave her the gospel presentation. And he said during the break, the lady asked him, well, you don't need to believe all that, do you? This is the moderator. And he asked her, so, well, you know, how do, how do you know you're saved? She said, well, you know, I was in sin, you know, rebellious, you know, alcohol, drugs, everything. And one day I got Jesus' phone number and we've sort of been in contact ever since. Mm -hmm. I got Jesus' phone number. Folks, you don't get Jesus' phone number. You need to be convicted of your sin. You need to realize that you're lost. I was going to say, that was the biggest change. I became a Christian 15 years ago. And from an unbeliever to a believer, I mean, the sinful life was there for years and years and continued, but boy, did I know, I mean, it really hurt because I felt the conviction. I really knew it was wrong, you know, that was the one thing that conviction that you that's that's the thing that stood out. It really bothers you. You know you're doing. <laughs> you know you're doing. Yeah. You're not supposed to be doing that. And then you look back to it in your life too. The conviction of the Holy Spirit comes in all alone. There's nobody else around. Nobody knows what you're thinking in your head except God. And in that process of being alone and that convicting spirit, it's 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 something that happens. It doesn't always happen when you're just sitting there hearing a messenger. Because a lot of times you'll hear that message and then you'll go home and start thinking about it. And then you're all alone. Next thing you know, you're trying to go to sleep at night and the Holy Spirit is knocking at your heart's door and convicting you that if something happened tonight, where would you be? He brings an awareness of sin. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. One of the greatest ministries of the Holy Spirit, apart from that of conviction, is he's going to guide you into all truth. Now, how, how does that work? 
as a Christian, as, as a normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill Christian, how can you know what is right and wrong? Well, the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit usually use? The Word, right? Um, you know, one of the great, you know, I'm sorry if this, if it sounds like I'm beating on charismatics, but I am a little bit. Um, but one of the dangers in the charismatic movement is, is a de-emphasis on the importance of the word of God and an overemphasis on the mystical component of the spirit of God. All right. Um, that's a danger. Um, you know, one lady says, I don't need to study the Bible. The Holy Spirit tells me what is true and what isn't. And it's like, okay, where do you get the truth? You know, while you feel it in the pit of your stomach. Why well, you take drugs and feel good in the pit of your stomach? I mean, that doesn't mean that you're right or wrong, right? I mean, that that's, you know, when you reduce the, the will of God to how you feel in your stomach, you know. Someone said that's that's one of the ways you discern whether the spirit of God is speaking or not, because you're the pit of your stomach, you feel good or you feel bad, or that's pretty mystical, right? <clears throat> What's the Bible say? There's a way that seems right on the man, a way that will lead to destruction. In other words, it may look right, it may feel right, but it may lead to destruction. Also be transformed, I mean to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right. And if you read Colossians and Ephesians, two books that are pretty much alike, 72 verses in Colossians and Ephesians are almost identical, about half the book. And uh, and one of them, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the other one said, let the spirit of Christ dwell in you richly. So if you want the spirit to dwell in you, what do you need to do? The let the word dwell in you, right? The bottom line is this. Is there a mystical component to our faith? Yes. But there's also a thinking component to our faith. There's a reason component. That reason is born out of a study of the Word of God, which the Holy Spirit then uses to help you understand it. That's called the work of illumination. You know, if you remember back to our studies in um, bibliology. You know, what's the Holy Spirit's role in the transmission of Scripture? Well, God, he inspired the Scripture, right? And that was done. That, that, that's something that was already done in, in time past. He inspired Paul to write a book. Is God inspiring Scripture today? No, he is not. But what is the Holy Spirit doing? He is illuminating the Scripture. That's, the, that's called illumination. How do you know what the Word of God means? You study it, and the Holy Spirit gives you understanding in it. And He is the Spirit of truth. All right? And John John picks this thing up again. What do you mean by I mean, is it, is, it, is it portions of our faith that we're not meant to ever understand? No, that's not what I mean. There's a, there's a portion of our faith that's not founded in rationality not irrational it's not irrational okay 
uh, that, that was the problem with the neo-orthodox. Neo-orthodox say, well, use your brain, and then when you get to the edge of the cliff, just jump off and hope God will catch you. That leap of faith kind of thing. Um, you know, the Bible is a rational book. God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Let's think this thing over. Luke, Christ says, sit down and think about it before you build a tower. You know, th think it through. Use your head. Think. But even though we use our minds, how is it that we know that we're thinking correctly? Well, that's the Holy Spirit who guides us in the truth, who enables us to understand it. And that is the mystical component. Okay. And maybe I'm using the mist, you know, don't, th don't think of mystical as an eerie or anything like that. It's just, it's, it's a non-rational component. Right. Right. I can't scientific. I can't reduce it to the scientific method. I can't reduce the. I can't reduce God. I can't do an experiment to hold a test of. There's God. He, he there. He is. See, he exists. Can't do that. All right. Faith. Yeah. If you look at us from the world view, they look at us as someone that believes that Jesus. Was a real person that he did live, he did die on the cross, did rose on the third day. But to them, it's foolishness. It's myth. It's, you know, it's just, and then you, you have all these programs that they show all those other aspects of what they think. Mm -hmm. You know, married to Mary Magdalene and has children somewhere around yeah. the world today. But from our point of view, that's what we're placing our entire hope of our future in. And why is that? Because God granted you. Of his own sovereign will, the faith to believe. It's not your great intellect that figures this thing out, because you wouldn't figure it out. In fact, quite honestly, the smarter you are, the least likely you are to get it. That's why Christ said, unless you become like a little child, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. There, there, there's this, this non. I don't want to call it irrational, because that's that's not what. It, but there's a non-rational, non-empirical component to our faith. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, John in, in, in 1 John talks about the same thing. Um, he says, uh, verse 24 of chapter 3, Now he commands, keeps his commandments, abide in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. How do you know that you really abide in Christ? Well, God has given you his spirit. And beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they be of God, because many false prophets have gone on in this world. By this you will know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist by which you have heard was coming and now already is in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John's picking up on the same theme here from John 16, picking up here in what he's saying. You have the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And how do you tell them apart? Well, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is the Christ. That's really the Greek construct. Jesus is the Messiah. 
come in the flesh. Physical, literally, in the flesh is not of truth, but is of error. Any system that denies that Jesus Christ is the Old Testament fulfillment, the Old Testament Messiah, is not right. So let's look at, uh, I don't know, pick Mormons. Are Mormons of the truth? They can't be because they deny Jesus as being the Messiah as promised in the Old Testament. Now they'll say he's the Messiah, but they mean something totally different by that than what the scripture says. How about a Jehovah Witness? No, he's a created being. How about the New Age? Well, he's a little God, but so are you. All right. Um, folks, the, God has given us his spirit to help us understand and know what is true and what is false. And what the Holy Spirit does is he uses a knowledge of the scripture to help us understand that. And one of the reasons so many Christians get, get snookered by all these false teachers is they don't know the truth. They they don't read their Bible. They don't study it. And it gets shunted off into some error because they don't know the scriptures. I was just thinking of that interpretation we were talking about by Mormon so forth. The presidential debate yesterday. Oh, Mitt Romney? Bible, Romney? Yeah. I mean, and I was just thinking, well, you know, it's, well, what Bible or which, you know, which part is he saying? You know, Always you know, ask what Jesus you believe in. Yeah. There's a lot of Jesuses out there. You know, yeah, I was um, just thinking that sometimes truth goes against human reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because human reason would say we're all flesh and blood, we're all children of the same God, no matter what we want to call Him, we're still called His children. And although you know, let's all hold hands and be, you know, children of the sing same Kumbaya God. and all that. Yeah, you know, and, and that's human reason that that says we all bleed, so we all must be. You know, together in this, but and understand what does error say? Let's get along. What does truth say? Test me. And we need to understand that. And this, this is very. Look, you, you sound when you say this, you sound like a pompous bigot to the world. But we have the truth. There's a whole lot of error out there. There's one truth. Perfectly reasonable after 9-11 for everybody to hold hands. Yeah. They were all in this together. About the only time the Democrats prayed. I'm going to get into that. I, know. I, mean, I, had, the no. um, I had the same emotion. Everybody was ready to pray after Yeah. Time. But what, what John is emphasizing here is he calls him the spirit of truth. He calls him the spirit of truth. In other words, the, the, the major characteristic he's emphasizing in the spirit is that of truth as opposed to error, false. And that, see, that's the one thing you got to understand something here when it, we, we, you got to get, you got to get your head around this. When God speaks, everything God says is true by definition because God can't lie. When God's not speaking, it's error. God is true. Everything else is error. God can't lie. And yet what we're told is, well, you know, you, you, 
you know, God, God is one truth of many. That, I mean, that's the big thing today. You know, well, you know, you got the Christian path to heaven, you got the Buddhist path, you got the path of Islam, you got the path of whatever, and they're all headed the same way. That's the Mother Teresa theology. They're all headed the same way, and as long as you're sincere, God will let you in. And the Bible says, and Jesus says in John, if you haven't got anything out of John, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If you come in any other way, you are a thief and a robber. I am the door. Um, you don't go in any other way. There's truth and there's error. And the spirit of truth, when he comes, he is going to guide us, lead us into all truth. And he's not going to speak on his own authority, but he's going to speak what he hears from whom? The Father and from Christ. The Holy Spirit is not out to exalt himself. And see, that's interesting. Um, who does Christ seek to honor? Who does the Holy Spirit seek to honor? Who does the Father seek to honor? Christ. They're all trying to seek the honor of the other. No one's in it for themselves. He will glorify me, verse 14. What's the idea of glorify? Adorn, make known, show off. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it unto you. So what is he going to declare unto us? Everything. And what is Christ saying? Everything that is... is is mine is the father's. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides us in the truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us understanding, spiritual understanding. It is not your great intellect or your brain or anything like that. It is the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand spiritual truth. And as we spend time in the Word of God, as we spend time meditating on the Word of God, as we spend time in prayer and asking God to help us understand this, the Spirit will guide us into truth. And you will know what that truth is. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> you know, you talk about the truth. And I, I believe that. I believe there's only one truth. Yet, when you look around the Christian world today, especially in America, you've got all these different aspects of people reading the same book, coming up with different ideas and different uh, beliefs. On the same subject, just look at the end times. You know, you got a wide range of beliefs, and they all say they have the same spirit, they have the same word, they have the same Bible. When you look at all that as a concerned person wanting that truth, what is what? How do you begin to differentiate between what is there and what is true? Because yeah. you sit down and listen to them, because. You can listen to the guy speaking about his version of the end time, and he's quoting the Bible. You're sitting there, and you're like, wow, that sounds pretty good. Then you can hear another guy telling you the same, his version, quoting scripture from the Bible, and you think, wow, that sounds pretty good too. And they're both completely convinced yeah. that they have the truth, and they, they declare it with, with all their heart. Mm -hmm. So if you have two Christians who disagree on a point of theology, what is true? That they 
and that the facts one or both of them are wrong, right? Yeah, they're both, yeah. One or both of them are Um I don't want to belabor this because I've got a, I wrote a thing out of my website you can read. Okay. But basically the way I answer that is, you know, everybody knows this who's taken my classes, right? You've got your essential truth. This is no-brainer stuff. If you don't agree with that, you're not a Christian. I don't care what church you go to. The virgin birth, the, the you know, substitutionary atonement, yeah. the literal physical second coming of Christ. You know, that that is essential. All right. You have your things of conviction, which may be like what mode of baptism, whether you're dunked or sprayed or sprinkled or whatever. You know, um, maybe, you know, you might have a conviction about some end time scenario or whatever. Then you've got a lot of preferences down here. A lot of peas, a lot of things that, you know, you can sit and talk about and, you know, what version of the Bible do you use? And, you know, do you sing hymns or do you sing modern praise choruses or, you know, do you wear a tie to church or not? You know, that's all preferences. That's all pea stuff. You know, where you draw the line is up here, you know. Um, and I think that that it, you can make the case that anybody who denies an E is not a Christian. The Holy Spirit at least brings everyone an understanding of what that essential truth is. Now, as you grow and mature, right, your convictions change, don't they? Because you're going to grow, right? Yeah, because as you grow in the Christian faith, as you mature, you know, there may be some things that you thought or believed very early on in your Christian walk because you've not been able to, you know, to study them yet or you've not, you know, had to deal with them. You might have had a certain feeling on something. And then as you study it, you know, your conviction about that changes or something. You know, those things slide back and forth a little bit. But the ease never change. They stay the same. So, like, for example, the doctrine of soteriology? Mm-hmm. Does that fall more under conviction rather than essential? No. What is essential? I mean, it's easy to list these things out. I mean, I think it's pretty easy. What is it? What is the essential center around? Person and work of Christ, right? I mean, that that's that's what's going to make you out of. That's what's going to send you to heaven or hell, right? has to do with the person and work of Christ. I think an essential also has to do with the nature of divine revelation. Do you have a Bible or not? If you don't have that, you can't figure the second one out, right? All right. So I think these here are are are, are essential truths. I mean, they're you can't you can't follow up the person and work of Christ and walk into heaven. It ain't going to happen. All right. You can be followed up on your eschatology and make it. You might get there sooner or later than you thought you might, but you're going to make it there. But you can't follow up the person and work of Christ. Study of last things. Prophecy. Yeah, end time events. It's come from the Greek eschatos, last. So, so, so can you be, for example, you know, question, can you, um, can you be followed up on, the, on God's sovereignty and still be a Christian? Can you be a four-point Calvinist and be a Christian? Sure you can. You can be followed up on it, right? 
he was fouled up on it before he got seen in light. And now he's, you know, he might still be fouled up. You know, I never know. But but the whole point, sure he can, all right? But you can't be messed up on is Jesus God or not. You can't mess that one up. You can be confused about some of these things that are non-essential, but you can't, you can't, for example, deny that Jesus is God. Right. Implied in that is the virgin birth. You can't, de- I don't believe you can consciously deny the virgin birth and be a Christian. Now, the, now is everybody who come to Christ, did they understand fully what that doctrine was? Well, no, but we, a true believer will not deny an essential doctrine. If you, if you call yourself a true believer and you deny the divinity of Jesus, you're not a Christian. You can't be. If you say you're a true believer and yet you don't believe Jesus literally and physically rose again from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, you're not a believer. Now, you may be confused about all the ins and outs and wherefores of that, but you can't deny it. And I think you can figure, the. and by the way, these essentials, they're all over the Bible. You can't miss them. Christ is not hiding. God will not hide some essential point of theology in Zephaniah 1.3 that you've got to figure out or you've lost. That's not going to happen. It's repeated throughout Scripture. But now we can debate these convictions, and a lot of these have to do with our upbringing, our background, um, the traditions that we come from. You know, those things slide, and, and you know, we can debate and discuss and argue those, but, but that's not going to keep you out of heaven. This will keep you out of heaven. And I think the Holy Spirit will bring you an understanding of the essentials. I think we make a great error, too, when we make convictions and preferences these essentials. Well, that's what we do. I mean, unfortunately, what, you know, the average, I can pick on the Baptist, the average Baptist church has it like this. You know, they got a little P, they got a little C, and they got everything essential. You know, that's, 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 you know, that's not the way it is. I was looking at Episcopalian, uh, being convicted that uh, homosexuality is not a sin, and he'll be considered, I mean, he'll be a, a believer because he's essential otherwise. And uh, I mean, how can you say, as, as, a, as an Episcopalian, as a body, having a conviction about we have to treat homosexual, we have to allow homosexuals in? Well, in see, yeah. They, and on the other hand, they say, well, yeah, I know how Christ, Christ is, is the Son of God and, and the virgin birth, he's, he's sovereign, he's, he's divine. I mean, that's, that's right there. Well, the Catholics, the Catholics believe that, and they're all lost, right? Every good Catholic is lost. Well, true, yeah. Good Catholic, in terms of their definition of Catholic, is lost because they don't believe in the substitutionary atonement. They don't believe in justification by faith alone and Christ alone. Oh, well, they got the deity of Christ right and they got all that, but they believe it's them plus God. I don't want to offend anybody or anything like that, but denomination is actually a preference. That falls in line preference too. I think a lot of it does. Does it say to be Baptist, Catholic? Yeah, we have, we have those names for those broad categorizations, but John's bringing out a good point here. What do you do about an Episcopalian denomination that says, you know, homosexuality is not a sin anymore? Well, my problem with that is all of a sudden now that to me, that's a strong conviction because they're they're denying what the word of God says. Right. 
All right. And that could slide over into the essential if they start to say, well, you know, not this whole thing isn't really inspired by God. And, you know, for Pete's sake, it's full of errors. And, you know, Paul was just a male misogamist homophobe of the first century that, you know, we need to discount his his, you know, um, uh, primitive beliefs on human sexuality because we're much smarter today than he was. You know, now you've got problems because now you're denying the scripture. You're denying the authority of the scripture. And that's going to lead you to other problems. And when you start sliding down that path, you're going to start sliding off the cliff. And what's happened to a lot of the mainline denominations is they are not Christian in the true sense. They no longer believe in the essentials. You know, you go to Methodist church as a crapshoot, whether you hit the good one or not. I mean, they're all over the map. You've got some that are, are very solid. Then you've got other ones that are pretty much, well, the one that you went to, you know, where, you know, the, he went and talked to his pastor and was told, well, you know, you got to get over this hang up about the scripture being really the true and inspired word of God. We all know better than that. You know, might be not in those words, but he was told that, well, you know, you can't believe that the Bible is really the word of God. It's, you know, now you've, now you're messing with the essentials. Now, now you've got problems. It really And my response to that high bishop is, what are you doing in a Methodist church? We, we have to resist the pressure to bow to this kind of stuff. When it comes to the essentials, we have to be bullheaded and obstinate. You know, and, and I'm not politically correct on the essential. Jesus is or isn't the son of God. There's no in between. You know, he either. Yeah, it's either he did it all or he did none. There's no in between. Like Paul says, it's works or grace. Pick one. You can't have them both. And and you, you cannot give any quarter on it. Now, I can I can be civil on the conviction stuff. You know, I can, you know. I might have a strong conviction about something, and it may mean my conviction may be so strong I can't go to your church because I just have such a strong conviction about something that you know I can't I can't in good conscience support and and worship that. That doesn't mean you're damned on your way to hell or anything like that. But I just I have a strong conviction about that. But when you get to the essentials, you must break fellowship. You must. You cannot. What concord hath Christ with Belial? None. You know, so you, you look at the scripture, we know that Christ prayed that we be one, as he and the Father is one. Mm -hmm. So the reality is unity is an essential belief. And but unity is centered, and this is the thing to understand, unity is centered around a knowledge of the truth. Christ did not say, and that's the problem with a lot of these boys, they say, Well, Christ wants us to be unified, so let's 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 this boil everything down to the lowest possible common denominator. So that we all can be, you know, one big happy family. 
there's there's essential truth that you you get lost if if you do that. You know, that's one of the problems I had with promise keepers who said, well, you know, let's believe the Apostles' Creed. Well, you know, the Apostles' Creed is sort of all right, but it has nothing to do about the substitutionary atonement of Christ and a few other pretty essential things. So you know, boil that down. Well, you know, the Catholics are in the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Anglicans, the, even the Mormons thought Promise Keepers was great. Now that's a problem. You know, if the Mormons want to join your group, you're not saying something you should be. And um, it's it's a, and, and who does it? It's the Holy Spirit who gives us truth. And and it's interesting. I mean, um, in in let's. Uh, yeah, it, it's interesting to read John in light of first, second, and third John. All right, because in third John, verse four, John says, "I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth." What brought joy to the heart of John? His children walk truth. And let me understand. Let me let me get you to understand something. If you are walking in the truth, what does it mean? You're in harmony with one another, right? So if you have disharmony, one or the other or both of you are not walking in truth. Third John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. What made John happy? That, that the people that he ministered to walked in the truth. Um, here's another one. Second John 4. I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in what? Truth. Folks, truth is something. And Jude, Jude says, I've, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but it was more necessary for me to write to have you earnestly contend for the once delivered to the saints' faith, the truth. If you don't fight for the truth, you lose it. And in 1 Timothy, Paul says that one of the reasons the church, one of the, the main uh, um, definitions of the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Does apostasy occur individual by individual, or does it occur by denomination? Both. So, but, but apostasy, apostasy, a fall away from the faith. Um, yeah. It, it just, it, they were never of us then. They, how, how, can they, they, how can they have the truth and walk away? They were never of us. Individually, yes. Individually, yes. But, you know, you go back 150 years, 200 years, you know, you have congregational churches that were very solid. Methodist churches. I mean, okay, Wesley was fouled up on the sovereignty of God, but you know he had a lot of other stuff right. Um, they were good, you know. Uh, Episcopal churches back, you know, two hundred years were good. Um, you know, most, you know, most of the mainline denominations were good. But then what happened? Well, you know, you have the eighteen hundred, and we'll study this in our next course. You have the eighteen hundreds come along. You got Darwin show up. You've got Westcott and Hort show up, and then all of a sudden, you know, well, you know, maybe this isn't the Word of God. I mean, you go back to the late 1700s, most everybody believed the Bible was the Word of God. They might argue and fight about what it means, but everybody didn't deny that it was the Word of God. And then when, you know, Darwin and the, the modern textual critics and everything came along in the late 1800s, that whole thing got torpedoed. And now, well, I don't know if it's the Word of God or not, because now you can get rid of God. See, before... Darwin came along. Everybody knew there was a God because we're here. We were created by something. Then Darwin comes along and says, well, you don't really need God at all. I mean, it's just a fluke of nature that you're here. 
So we got rid of God. Now you got rid of God, you know, the dam burst and, and all the mainline denominations that, that went down that, that, that path of, of, well, you know, we're like, maybe this isn't the Word of God. Maybe it just contains the Word of God. Or maybe, you know, these guys were just, you know, inspired, but it's not the inerrant Word of God. They, 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 they got off base and then they kept sliding and sliding. And now all of a sudden you've got the Episcopals, you know, um, ordaining homosexuals. You got Spawn. That guy's a spawn of hell. Um, yeah, Bishop Spong, who's, he rejects everything. I mean, the guy, the guy might as well just, he might as well put a bone in his nose and dance with chick, dead chickens. I mean, the guy is as pagan as it can be. Um, who's an Episcopal bishop, you know, and a big shot bishop, but just pagan to the core, denies every fundamental of the Christian faith. You know, and John is saying the spirit of truth will lead you guide you and keep you in the truth. That's what he does because there's a whole lot of error out there. And the only way that you can pick it out is you need to be in the word of God so that God can use this word and the Holy Spirit can use this word to help you understand what is true and what isn't. Because if not, you're going to be all over the map. You're going to be all over the place. Um, that's heresy. That's called Sabellianism. That was dealt with back in the second and third and fourth centuries. So are, are they, you know, Christians? No. You can't deny the Trinity. You may not understand it, but you can't deny it. That's Sabellianism. That was a heresy. Pardon? You know, they got they got the essential part. I mean, as far as you know, the nature of revelation, person yeah. and work of Christ. But they well, the person and work of Christ includes within it an understanding of the Trinity. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But they're not the same being. They're not different titles for the same person. That's modalistic monarchianism or Sabellianism. It's fancy word, but it, it was, came up with a guy named Sibelius who basically said, well, you know, the Jehovah God in the Old Testament is the Jesus Christ in the Gospels who is now the Holy Spirit in the church. It's the same being. How can Christ send himself? And being sent from that, you know, you got to really do some backflips and handsprings to get around, you know, John. Yeah. Yeah, well, and again, you know, in defense of them, the Trinity is not specifically stated in the Bible, but it's certainly implied. All right. I'm sorry, it's, you know, saying sometimes Jesus spoke out of his humanity and sometimes he spoke out of his, out of his divinity. Um, that is true. I mean, there's a sense in which... But they use, you know, all the scriptures like this. But, but, but Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's both. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ was was, you know, seeing the cross and there's that, that human part of him that shied away from that, although he was going to do that in obedience to the Father. They use that scripture like the influence in Isaiah where it's about the Prince of Peace, the, the, um, the mighty God. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're, they're, the, whenever you have someone deny the Trinity, th logically, 
and 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 deliberately and knowingly deny the Trinity, they are not Christian. Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses deny the Trinity. They're not Christian. Yeah, they're not Christian. They use the same words. They mean different things. They're not Christians. They're not. You know, and they'll they'll argue till the cows come home that they are, but they're not. Very good at picking a verse here, a verse there, a verse there to make up their, their belief system, but they never look at it as one story yeah. that has to fit together. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit brings you a comprehension and an understanding of that. That's why you need to be steeped in the Word of God so that you know what it says. That's how, how does God speak to you now? Yeah, I don't, I haven't heard any voices. He speaks to me through his word. And the Holy Spirit takes the word that I'm reading when, and, and, and he brings it alive to me. He helps me understand it. You hear wrong. Say, I know that's wrong. Yeah, because it is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who guides us in all truth. And understand, God wants you to know truth worse than you want to know it. <laughs> God wants you to know it worse than you do. I was going to say one of the two things that I was a young Catholic boy growing up in catechism. And one of the things I think they actually had it right when they talked about the Trinity and everything, they said it's a supernatural mystery. Like, yeah. I accepted that, but I mean, you're not going to understand it maybe like that. But you just have to accept it. The problem is whenever. Whenever you try to, in your own pea-brained intellect, figure out an infinite God so that you can understand him, you're going to get the wrong answer. Um, you can't do that. You can't figure out the Trinity. I accept it. It's a mystery. I don't understand it. I accept it. I can't figure out divine sovereignty, human responsibility. I accept it. I can't figure out how Jesus is fully God, fully man, and yet not... 200% of something or half of something, the hypostatic union, I don't understand that. I accept it. The Bible tells me that's the way it is. And I say, okay, fine, I'll believe that. Um, and that's where your rationality ends. All right. But the Holy Spirit does bring you an understanding at a base point that, for example, the Trinity, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is God. Okay, I don't understand that, but I'll take your word on it. I believe it because that's what the Bible teaches. <laughs> This is truth. All right. And this this is what the Holy Spirit and the word of God is what defines truth to us. And since the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible, what better person can you have to tell you what it meant? I don't need some, you know, some preacher to tell me what it means. I need the Holy Spirit to tell me. And the Holy Spirit is available to all of us. You know, we got this idea that, well, I'm not going to figure this out until the pastor preaches on it. He's got the same Holy Spirit you have. Where, do you, where does he get his information? Same place you can get yours. The Holy Spirit teaches us and leads us and guides us in all truth. And that's what Christ says here. He's going to teach you and guide you in all truth. Thank you for listening to today's study in the Gospel of John. Part 2 of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. 
This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.